Chapter 21 is where we'll start in this time of study. 1 Samuel chapter 21. I am not Zach. (laughs) I appreciate uh, Brother Jim praying for Zach to be ready to present the lesson. He is presenting a lesson, just not here. Uh, Zach is in Mountain View this morning. He's preaching for the congregation there. And uh, so that's why he's not here. Uh, Next week, I am going to be gone. I'm beginning a meeting uh, Sunday through Wednesday in the Martinville congregation north of Conway. Uh, I went there last year. Uh, They're giving me another chance to get it right this year, so I'm going back for that. But uh, anyway, because of that, uh, I'm going to do the assembly and the the lesson this morning. Next week, Zach will be here, and he'll do both uh, next week, which means... Uh, For those of you who are sticklers about the calendar, normally we do the Q&A on the second Sunday in this time, the assembly time, but I won't be here next week, and uh, with some of the questions you guys have given me, I'm not going to let Zach do that quite yet, Uh, although that'll come in its time, Uh, but uh, anyway, we'll do that on the third Sunday. We'll we'll do Q&A on the 15th, so uh, looking forward to that. 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 10. 1 Samuel 21 and verse 10. It says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now this scene all began with the giant. You remember the giant Goliath was taunting the armies of Israel and David came to the battle. He heard Goliath and everybody is scared of Goliath, scared to go fight him except David, this little shepherd boy who goes out without armor, goes out with just his sling and five stones and who kills the giant, and then takes his head off with his own sword. Now, everybody loves David after that. The people are singing. I I picture them kind of carrying him off on their shoulders uh, as they leave the field. And uh, the Philistines flee. Saul is pleased. Saul makes him commander of his army. But then Saul hears what the people are saying about David, what the women are singing, which is the same thing that the Philistines heard. Saul is slain as thousands, and David is ten thousands. And Saul's ears perk up when he hears that because Saul knows that means they think David's greater than me and they also think my time has passed and it's time for a new guy, okay, somebody who's even better. And so Saul begins to be suspicious of David. Twice he tries to kill him by his own hand. Saul is a guy who always seems to have a spear in his hand and he throws his spear at David twice. Uh, Saul tries to get him to be killed by the Philistines by demanding this high price of of the Philistines, him to kill a lot of Philistines before he can marry one of his daughters. And then Saul sends to seize him in his bed, and David has to run. So this is the scene where he runs. And when you run away, where do you run? You run away, anywhere you can go. And so David goes probably to the place that we would go last, okay, which is he goes to his enemies, And he goes to Achish, king of Gath. It says in verse 10, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. 
And then in verse 15, Achish says, shall this fellow come into my house? Which gives us a little indication that maybe what David's doing is presenting himself uh, as wanting to serve the king of Gath, wanting to be a part of his house. Maybe he's trying to be a mercenary soldier and saying, hey, I fight pretty well. Why don't you let me come in? Although, I don't know how much good one soldier is going to do, you know. He's all alone. So that doesn't seem to be a well-thought-out plan. But Achish is king of Gath. You know anybody else from Gath? Maybe Goliath of Gath? You think maybe they've heard of David in Gath? Okay, so this doesn't seem to be a really well-thought-out plan. I picture David as just scared out of his mind. Have you ever not known where to turn and you turn to the wrong place? Have you ever said, you know what, i got to take matters into my own hands, and then you used your own hands to make a worse mess? Okay, that's what David's doing here. Okay, he doesn't know where to go, and so he goes to the worst place to go. Verse 12, it says, David took these words to heart. They know who he is and was much afraid of Achish, king of Gath, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So he realizes he's miscalculated here. He's misjudged Achish, he's misjudged his servants, and he is afraid, so he pretends to be crazy. So there is going on in David in this moment some intense prayer. We don't read about it here, but we'll talk about more why I know that in just a minute. Some intense prayer. He sees this as a pivotal moment. He knows he could die if this doesn't go well. He could very easily be killed. He's all alone. He's in the hands of his enemies. And so he knows he's just got to pretend. And he pretends to be insane. And so there is a little bit of drama here where Achish, I'm assuming that he's going to observe him for a little while and see, is this a show or what's going on here? But it's strange enough that the commander of the army of Israel has come to his door all alone. So it must be that there's something wrong with him. And so, yes, Achish does believe. In fact, he asks a, a question that I think is really funny where he says, Hey, are, are we short of crazy people that you brought me another crazy person, okay? Do I lack madmen that you brought me another madman? So, with that scene in mind, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, where we see a little bit of what David is thinking as he goes through this, and we get some background, and we also get something that I think will help us. Psalm 34 The title of the psalm says, Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Probably Abimelech is another name for Achish, or Abimelech could be uh, like Pharaoh. It's sort of a general title uh, for certain Philistine kings. But we're talking about the same scene that we just read, when he changed his behavior and so the king drove him out. Verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So what you're seeing here is David, in thinking about this scene where he had to pretend to be crazy, he sees God's hand in it. And he says, God deliver me, God save me, God help me. 
And so he takes his experience, verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So he says, this was my experience. The Lord saved me. The Lord helped me. And then he, he reasons from that to the broader of this is what God does. In verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This is what God does. God did it for me, but it's because that's what God does. So he's reasoning from his personal experience out to God's nature. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So he invites others to try God out. That's verse 8. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You try him. His experience has so blessed him and encouraged him and emboldened him that he says, you got to try what I did. You got to try God for yourself. Taste and see that he is good. And this is what he does for all people who fear him. Verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. See, now he's ready to teach after this experience. I've got something to say. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from seeking deceit, speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So he says, if you want to experience the blessings of God the way I did, try him. Live the way you should. And he talks about seeking peace and pursuing it, keeping your tongue from speaking evil. Do what's right because God's eyes are on the righteous. And he says, you try him and see this is who God is and what he does. He is near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, especially when they are living before him the way he chooses for them to live. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The Lord delivers. The Lord redeems his people. This is what God does. So I want you to see that's the nature of the psalm. David has had this incredible experience where he nearly lost his life. He reached out to God and God saved him. And now he says, this is awesome. You've got to try it. You can hear the emotion in the psalm where he is so excited. He is so relieved. He is so thankful that now he's teaching everyone else and he's inviting everyone else. You need to, you need to experience what I've experienced in God. And I am particularly drawn to this statement in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try him. Taste and see. I put some fruit on the board because that's what I picture. Taste and see. You taste it. And then haven't you ever tasted something and you said, man, you've got to try this and hand it over to somebody else? Okay, I, I hear people do that about watermelon. If I eat watermelon, I'm probably going to throw it away. I'm not going to give it to anybody else. I just don't like watermelon. But there are things that I like, and some of those things are pretty good. And I say, you've got to try this. This is great. Haven't you ever been there? That, that something is so good you can't keep it to yourself, and you want other people to experience it. And we might smell it, and we might look at it, we might touch it, but we won't really know what we think about it until we taste it. That's the idea that there is something more to experiencing it. 
So what I want to draw from this, and the lesson I'm trying to get us to see as we study through this psalm, is that experiencing a truth helps us appreciate it. When we experience a truth, when we taste it, then we learn something that the truth by itself doesn't communicate. It helps us appreciate it on a deeper level. That was true in school, where the things that we learned in school were more powerful when we saw the relevance they had to our real life. We said, oh, I need that. I see. I'm going to use that. That will help me. And so when I experience that truth, then I appreciate more the knowledge that I gained. That's true when, for example, don't touch a hot stove becomes, oh, I don't want to touch a hot stove because it's hot. Okay, when you do it once, you realize, oh, that's what that means. Got it. Experiencing helps you appreciate it on a deeper level. Or the idea that hard work and sacrifice pays off, that if I forego something now, I'll have something better later. When you experience that, it it drives that message, that truth home in your heart. So experiencing a truth helps us appreciate it. And when I say that, I want to be careful. I am not trying to say some certain things. I am not trying to say that my experience counts as truth, that something becomes true just because I experience it. That's not what I'm saying. Experience and truth are two different things, but my experiences can help drive home a truth. That's what happens with David. When David experiences God's deliverance, he says, oh, that's what it means when all these people have for so long said God saves his people. I know now. I know what it means to be terrified. I know what it means to cry out to God, and I know what it means for God to save. He has experienced the truth, and he says, man, you've got to try this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This idea does not mean that God always does exactly what I want as long as I try it. You know, well, that's what Jesus calls testing God, okay? That as long as you try him, God always has to respond. That's not what I'm saying. Nor am I saying that we can't understand a truth until we experience it. it. That's not what I'm saying. So, for example, we can understand the truth about what the Bible says about raising children, even if we don't have children. We can understand it, but can't we say, I mean, we've probably all had this experience, right? Those who are parents, weren't you an expert on child raising before you had kids? And then what happened? Then you had kids and you didn't know so much, right? It was a little different. At least that's been my experience. I thought I knew a lot more than I know, and I know less now than when I started. That idea of experiencing, then I go back and I look at what's in scripture and I say, oh, That's what that's talking about. That's what it means to provoke my children to wrath. That's what it means to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's what it means to have this always on my heart and tongue. Got it. You see, experiencing that truth, seeing the power of it, helps us appreciate it. That's what I'm trying to say. So it's not that experience is somehow, in addition to truth, something that we have to have to understand God, but it is something that helps us. So David is telling us, do more than just know experience it. Try it for yourself. Peter talks about this, 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see that tasting again? If you've experienced the goodness of the Lord, then you're going to long for more. Like we long for food, like we have something, we taste it and we're like, that's good. We're going to come back to it, aren't we? And that's what Peter is saying here. He is saying, you long for the pure spiritual milk because you can grow by it and you've tasted that it's good. 
when you see that God gives good truth, that it's absolutely true and best for you, you want to keep coming back. That's the idea of experiencing a truth. Uh, the Hebrew writer uses the same image, for it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. There's a lot more we need to talk about about that verse, but I want to draw out that idea. He is saying these are people who have tasted it and experienced salvation for themselves. It's not just that they know some stuff, that they have experienced what it is to be saved from sin. They have tasted the heavenly gift and the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So whatever happens to them after they've experienced it for themselves, it's going to be a lot harder to communicate something to them than somebody who had never tasted it. I think that's the point of the verse, that experiencing the truth helps us appreciate the truth. And of course, the Hebrew writer is taking the negative tack on that. Would you go with me to Romans chapter 12? I want to look at a couple of places in the New Testament uh, that really, I think, illustrate this idea of how experiencing a truth drives it home for us. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 and verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says at the end of verse 2, this is what I want to zero in on, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You may prove it, some versions say. And that idea of testing or proof, what I believe is happening here is Paul is saying, you try it, you test it, you live it, you do what God says, and what you will discover is that it is good and acceptable and perfect. You will discern that that is the will of God as you see it lived out and you see that really is true, that really is good, that really is acceptable, that really is perfect. That the more we live it, the more it drives home, wow, this really is what's best for me. I believe what Paul is trying to get us to do here is to say, try it out, live it, and then you will discover something about it. In other words, we need to taste and see, appreciate what God said, and then we'll see that what God said really is true. Now, I'm not saying it's not true until we experience it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when we do experience it, it drives it home even further. We prove it. We test it. And what we discover is it really is what it claims to be. And there is also a part of this that is about being personal. I want you to go with me to John chapter 4. John 4, that, that when things are personal, they change in terms of our experience of them. They change in terms of our appreciation of them. I think we've probably all had the experience of maybe sitting in a church building like this and hearing someone read from the Bible and it just kind of going whew, right over our heads. It sounds good. I mean, it's biblical. And we know, okay, yeah, that's from the Bible. That's good. But it doesn't really hit us. And I, I think that there is something here in John 4 that helps us see. Sometimes we can know facts and we can hear things. And there is a different level on which we process when we realize that they are directed at us and that they are for us. In John chapter 4, this is the story of the woman at the well. 
And after Jesus has this conversation with the woman at the well, it says in verse 28, John 4 and verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So you have this woman who, who says, taste and see. Come check him out. Because, man, he told me everything I ever did. She is convinced, and she wants them to come see for themselves. So drop down a few verses to 39. 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you hear the difference? They, they specify, we now believe, but it's not because of you. Okay? It's not because of your testimony. So a lot of them said, okay, well, maybe she's right. I mean, how could anybody know that about her? But now they say, it's not about you anymore. We believe because we have heard it. We get it. It's personal. I understand. It's my faith now. Which, by the way, this is what we're trying to do as parents, right? We want our children to reach a point where they say, I believe now, but it's not because of you, mom and dad. It's because I've heard for myself. I understand and I believe for myself. That's the goal, because we want them to experience the truth for themselves, to appreciate it on a deeper level so that their faith doesn't go through someone else like these people. Now their faith stands on its own. So experiencing a truth then helps make it more personal, where this is about me and God. That's what happens with David. David knew all these things about God and what God does, but when David is there in front of Achish, all of a sudden things are different. Now it's about me and God and nobody else. Nobody else is riding through there to save him. No brothers, no dad. Nobody's here but me and God. And when I reached out to God, God saved me. So you, you got to try this. You got to taste and see that the Lord is good the way I have. I've got about 10 minutes here. I just want to take the last part of our time. And I want to tell you some things, some areas in my life where this has been true. Now, I can't open up the floor and let us all say, hey, give me an example of how experiencing a truth has helped you appreciate it, mainly because there are a lot of people in this room and we would go on and on. But since I'm the one speaking, I'm going to give you some examples from my life about areas where this has come true and kind of tell you what I understand this to mean. So go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. I've limited myself to three of these. Uh, the first one is, is in marriage. First uh, Peter 3 and verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I have probably heard this verse for most of my life, bits and pieces, certainly the weaker vessel part. Uh, that idea, living with your wives in an understanding way, although I'm not sure I understood what that meant. As I started preaching, I knew this verse intellectually. That's one of the verses that talks about marriage. You gotta, you're going to talk about marriage, you got to go to 1 Peter 3, 7. But I'm not sure I processed this personally. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, I was nice to my wife. Okay, I tried to be nice, I tried to be pleasant, I tried to give her things I thought she'd like, although we had one time where 
I got her a present that was actually something I wanted, and that didn't go very well. But, but anyway, she's not in here to tell you about that. I didn't really grasp this passage, though. I, there are a couple of parts of it. And the first part of verse 7 says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, that is a remarkable truth. What that says is husbands don't naturally understand their wives. I could have told you, yeah, that's true before I got married. But doesn't experiencing that truth help? That maybe I'm not the first one to not naturally understand my wife. But that that's not something I can just throw my hands up and say, oh, well, I don't get it. It's something that I am, I am taught by God to work to understand. Dwell with your wives in an understanding way. I had to learn to listen to my wife, to really listen, to hear what she wants and what she needs and what she loves and what she hates. I needed to learn that. And then there is this other part that talks about showing honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. That is to say that there's nothing wrong with my wife thinking that she's really special to me, there's no such thing as me spoiling her. That it's okay if she thinks she's doing really well. Maybe she thinks she's got me wrapped around her finger. That's I'm showing honor to her. Okay? I had to learn that. That was not something I naturally did. And we spent many years of our marriage where I didn't get it. But when I did, my marriage took off. I, had a, I have a wonderful marriage. Part of that is being married to a wonderful woman, but part of that is listening to God, that when you do what God says, it works. And so I come to 1 Peter 3, 7, and I say, especially to men that are younger than me, young husbands, I say, you got to do what's in there because it works. In other words, I say, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's teaching us this is how to have happiness in your life. It works if you do it. And so I feel I've experienced that truth, and so I'm much more passionate about it because I know it's true. Now, I knew it was true before, but now I know it's true because I've lived it. And that's what I'm trying to say. Go with me to Matthew 7. <clears throat> I've experienced this truth about condescension. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Where am I? Verse 5, okay, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I looked up and Josie wasn't there. So I'm reading the passage and, okay, she's over there. And then I lost my place. So what's challenging about the concept is not the concept. Like we all understand the idea of the speck and the beam that Jesus is saying. Sometimes we criticize other people, but we've got problems. So we're being hypocritical. Like we all get that. What's hard about this is seeing ourselves in it even though it's a passage about seeing ourselves. I spent a lot of my formative years condescending to other people. And when I say condescending, I'm particularly thinking about condescending to denominational people, people who are in denominations and in denominational error. So I would make fun of them. 
things like, how could anybody believe that? Have you ever even read the Bible? I would argue with them at every opportunity. But there was always this sense of, you know, I'm just, I'm just better than that. I just wouldn't do that. I just don't believe that. I just don't think that way. And I'm not proud of that. I shudder at my condescension. Sometimes it seems to me that we take the sense of superiority that comes from God being right, and we say, you know what? I'm like that. I'm right, and I can look down on others without actually being right. That also, by the way, can extend to politics and some other things, but that's not really my topic. As I look back on that time, what I see is, is I have so much regret about opportunities that I missed to really engage people. I realize how much I could not see what other people really were. I could not see their love and their faith and their sincerity and their passion. All I saw was their denominational error. That's all I saw. That's all I could think about. And the worst part is that in all my condescension, I wasn't living the way I should, and I knew it. So somehow I was wrong, and I condemned other people and looked down on them. Speck in the bean, right? Has God awakened me to that, how I had violated this passage? This verse has become so meaningful to me. It means so much to me that God knows me that well, that Jesus said that thousands of years ago, and that that was true of Jacob now. So when I think about condescension, when I hear condescension, I have a lot more passion in telling other people, you got to watch out for that. You got to watch out about looking down on other people because remember what Jesus said, that is true and it can be true of us. All right, I want to get to one more. I got three minutes. I want to talk about forgiveness in Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. You guys have heard me talk about forgiveness on a number of occasions and talk about this passage. But I'm just trying to say that experiencing a truth helps us appreciate it. And this is another area of my life where that's happened. Ephesians 4 verse 31. Ephesians 4 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. I knew this verse, I knew this context, I knew that God didn't want us to hate people, but it was a long time before I realized that God was speaking about my hurt, my pain, people have wounded me, and something was missing from my life. It took a while for me to realize personally that this was talking about how God expected me to learn to forgive my father. That was it. For some of the things he had done in my childhood, the way he tore up my family, and the things that happened even after that, that I was just angry. And it, it was so long before I could just recognize that I was so angry. I didn't even know. And that Jesus was saying that until I can learn to forgive, I can't be forgiven. That that was for me. Not just about, you know, well, Christians are supposed to be forgiving people, but that I needed to work on it. I needed to forgive. It took me so long before I realized that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, those were things that, that were problems for me and that I had work to do. And so I, I began the long journey toward forgiveness, not just with him, but with all the hurts in my heart, all the people that I had kind of kept tallies about and what they had done to me. 
to think differently about them, to realize my own sin, see myself in the parables of Jesus about the unforgiving servant. And I had these things deep within me. And when I finally grew to a point that I felt like I could do that, do you know how I felt? I felt free. I felt amazing. I had a new lease on life because none of these things were true of me anymore. And I could be forgiving. And suddenly it meant so much to me that God had forgiven me. Do you know what I want to do now? I want to tell every person I meet, you got to get the bitterness out. You can't live with it. It is poison in your heart. You got to let it go. You got to come to terms. You got to start on the path to forgiveness. You got to taste and see that the Lord is good. It is a better life to be forgiving. Hard as it is, painful as it is, to pull those things up and work through them, it is a better life. You got to trust God. You got to try Him. You got to taste and see that the Lord is good. I could go on and on. I don't have time to go on and on, but I could. I promise you, I could. But I encourage you, experience the truth, try the Lord, taste and see that the Lord is good. Thanks so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.